Hello, and welcome back to Equity, a podcast about the business of startups, where we unpack the numbers and the nuance behind the headlines. I am Alex Wilhelm, and I am joined this Friday, as I am each and every week, by my two besties. In one corner, I have Natasha Moscarenas. Natasha, it is not Friday, but it is nearly Friday as we record this. How are you feeling? I am feeling really good. I'm actually drinking out of a mug that Marianne gifted me Aww. when I left Crunchbase News. So I feel like all, all sweet and cozy and happy. Oh, Very good. My heart's full. <laughs> it is a week for full hearts. Marianne, you're also here. How are things in your world? What's going on in fintech? Things are good. Lots going on in fintech as always. Some things good, some things not so good, but we'll get into that more later. Yeah, that's kind of the theme of the show, I feel. It's like, what the <laughs> hell is going on in fintech and who is not doing well? So today we are going to talk about a couple of deals. There's the Orange Dow effort. There's a company called Spectral and one called Mural, but not the Mural that you know. It's a different Mural. Oh. Then for the first theme, we're going to talk about the state of the market and how that relates to companies like Stripe. From there, it's not Adam and Eve, it's Adam and Elon. It's going to be a banging segment. Get excited about that. Iconic. And finally, we're going to close with IPOs, Instacart and Zoom and a couple of public market results. Pack show, lots to do. Let's dive right in. Natasha, Orange Dow, Y Combinator, crypto, investing cohorts. What's going on here? <laughs> well, first I have to stop and just say kudos on that amazing <laughs> run through. I'm like more excited about the show. I didn't know there was room for that. So and I can't believe I didn't see Adam and Elon coming. I mean, but definitely <laughs> I, the I new didn't either <laughs> until I was halfway through reading through the rundown. And I was like, oh, well, we're going to go that way. Oh well, God. let me just say, I'm so glad you're back from vacation. And yes, of course, we're going to start our Equity Friday with a conversation on DAOs. So people who've been following the show and just following YC actually for a bit now may remember Orange Dow. It was a crypto native decentralized autonomous organization that was created where it brings together around like 1000 YC alumni who want to invest in Web3 startups together. And it's really broken down into two different entities. So there's one DAO is structured itself as a Cayman's Island foundation company, while the fund is run separate as a legal entity. And funds have this weird SEC cap where they can only have 100 investors. This one has 1,000, which is why people who actually are part of the fund are less than 100. And the DAO, the group that helps vote and choose which companies the entity invests in is much, much larger. I'll stop there. I think it's really interesting, oh. though. So I'm actually familiar with this foundation style setup because a lot of crypto projects are also done in the same way. They'll have like a foundation in Switzerland and then they'll have like a Cayman company that actually holds more assets. So this is a not unique setup, but my read of this is that it's a simply insane amount of complexity to allow for relatively small checks to go into these Web3 companies. I think your story mentioned a number of around 100K. So do we care more about this as an experiment or as a capital source? Ooh, so Anita actually was the one who dug into this and I think that that my takeaway from her story was that DAOs, when we were first hearing about them, were all looked at as like this really insane and, and useful on-ramp for people who didn't understand like all the nuances of crypto to understand basic things, which is you can vote and then invest. And so I think that for members, they benefit from being able to invest without needing formal accreditation. And then for people who get checks, it's more that network. So it's kind of funny though, because it's like kind of a full circle moment where it's YC was what brought people together, which is a network. And now they want that same network to benefit another network of people. And so it's like a lot of bets on one network and that original Y Combinator stamp of approval. It becomes like yeah. pretty mixed up. But I mean, the reason they're in the news this week is because they did raise 80 million to back more companies. Small checks still, but much bigger than their original goal of trying to raise 10 million. Yeah. Marianne, my read of this is that it's a very, very intelligent bit of corporate origami. So you can fold your way past the laws and not get into too much trouble. Do you like it? I mean, 
I was intrigued by their ability to get a thousand people involved as opposed to a hundred. I'm still wondering how they managed to do that exactly. But yeah, in general, I'm still trying to wrap my brain around the concept of DAOs. I feel like similarly, this is how I felt about NFTs when all that that (laughs) trend first started. And we all know how I felt about NFTs. So, you know, I'm still trying to understand them. And I'm curious to see if they continue to grow in popularity. I think one thing that keeps coming up for me as I on-ramp into fintech is even the people that are not necessarily like we are going to create a DAO and we're going to create an investment club in this format are benefiting from this idea where can we bring a group of people together to vote and then join in on split ownership in different things we invest in. Like this week I wrote about a Stanford investment club which started in 2020 actually turning into a VC-backed startup. And I actually told the founder, I was like, listen, when I wrote that story in 2020, you guys got a lot of shade from people being like, of course, Stanford GSB did this, like good luck anyone else. And they were like, it was a super fair criticism that we saw and we almost didn't start the company because we were like, are we a corner case? And so when I see like Orange Dow and Stanford 2020 turning into a VC-backed startup, I see still the corner cases, but maybe some efforts towards bringing out that corner case to other people. Alex, is that too optimistic of me? No, no, I'm always here for the optimistic take, Natasha. I think it pairs well with our general skepticism of certain elements of the Web3 world. I'll just say that democracy is messy And if you end up in a DAO that isn't voting the way you might think, it might seem a little bit like you're being run over a rough shot. But let's move along to our second deal of the week. Marianne Spectral is taking a piece of technology from the world that we all hate and bringing it to the blockchain. (laughs) Yes, yes. So Jacqueline wrote about this company, Spectral, that raised $23 million to help create Web3 credit scores. I I was intrigued by this concept because I have written a bit about the whole concept of credit scores being antiquated, the way that we measure them and determine them in this country is just really, really dated and old. And I think Alex agrees with me on that. But I really hadn't thought about credit scores in the context of Web3. So Spectral calls itself a credit risk assessment infrastructure Web3 startup. It raised money from some pretty big name investors, General Catalyst and Social Capital, which is run by Chimam. They co-led the round and Samsung participated, Gradient Ventures, Franklin Templeton. So what the company's trying to do is what they said is they were trying to address some of the gaps in DeFi. And then they realized, okay, there's not just a gap in risk infrastructure and credit risk. It's just non-existent. So that's what they're trying to do. I'm still a little bit confused because they say they've built an on-chain equivalent to a traditional FICO score. Mm -hmm. It's called the Multi-Asset Credit Risk Oracle Macro Score which allows users to check their on-chain scores through its platforms. I guess what I'm still confused about is like, that's fine, but where is that going to be taken into consideration? Like if you apply Uh, for a mortgage, are you going to say, here's my macro score? Right. I think that when we think about the FICO score, your kind of traditional American credit scoring that we all have to live under some sort of like foisted regime of pain, in the Web3 context, a macro score is for Web3 business and doings. Oh, and so there's okay. actually a pretty big lending market in the Web3 world, which is how some of those companies kind of got a little bit over leveraged. But if you're a consumer and you just want to borrow some, um, I don't know, stable coin against your NFT holdings, having a strong credit score in the Web3 world might make you able to get a lower interest rate on that particular transaction. Ah, and there's a lot okay. of money moving around, Marianne, and where there's money movement. That's, that's helpful. Yeah. 
That's helpful. Okay, sorry. Yeah, I, I understand now. Because at first I was kind of like, is this going to be applied to the yeah. real world <laughs> or, or both or what? So this is really created specifically for Web3. And that's how credit risk can be determined in this world. Okay, that's fascinating, actually. Yeah, I mean, on one end, I'm very much like your initial reaction, Marianne, where I'm like, is this going to change the game for people who traditionally have been screwed over by the system of credit scores. And I think it'll be less about changing the generally historically overlooked people's experience with getting loans and more like, can we help historically overlooked people find a spot in the crypto world by making it easier to access things? I mean, and I guess like I was very excited to see innovation focused in Mm -hmm. this area. Yeah, Mm -hmm. Web3 credit Mm -hmm. score is like, is one of those like things that I don't see tacked on after Web3 ever. It's usually something else. So I was like, thank God for something. Yeah. Yeah. I would have to agree with that. I mean, any way to kind of open up access to people who really haven't been able to have it before, I'm totally in support of. So I will be very interested to see how this company grows and does over time. Yeah. There's a lot here, but I will say that crypto terminology is always better than not. For example, the last O in macro is Oracle, which is a way of pulling information from one source to the other, if I understand it correctly. But like, it's just great branding. Oh my God. It is. That's really, that was smart. I have to admit. All right. Now we're going to go from a confusing story to a slightly more confusing story. This is the third. (laughs) The third deal of the week, it's about a company called Mural and not the company formerly known as Mural Lee, which is a team focused whiteboarding application that blew up during COVID. Marianne and I think have both covered them throughout time. Mural is a very cool company. This Mural is... I associate that company with both of you, by the way. I don't know. I mean... (laughs) Yeah, very much associated with both of you. (laughs) It's because the CEO is charismatic and he's nice to talk to. And so I ended up talking to him more. There you go. Startup hack. If you don't think it's rare, go outside. (laughs) Mural, in this case, raised $5.6 million to build financial infrastructure so that IRL brands that may have a toe in the world of Web3 can handle the financial side or aspects of having a DAO or decentralized autonomous organization. Now, you're asking yourself, why would a brand have a DAO? No idea. But if they did want to have a DAO, Mural is building the framework for them to have money inside of it that can be used. Did that make sense? This is one of those times where I wish we could like phone a podcast and call Chain Reaction and be like, hey, is this cool? (laughs) Or not. <laughs> what was that show, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, yeah. where you could like call somebody, what is it, Lifeline or something? Oh my God. Like yeah. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. <laughs> well, we can't phone a podcast because it's just three of us. But I'll say this. It is cool to see DAOs get more tooling. Because one thing we've seen, and we'll talk about Stripe later on, is that it's often companies that are building the kind of underlying technology or infrastructure that end up capturing a lot of value in the market. And so maybe, given that we've talked about several DAOs today alone, and they are to some degree taking off, maybe Merle's barking up the right tree. Yeah, I mean, if it's anything how infrastructure companies are doing in the fintech space, you know, then there's a lot of potential here because infrastructure startups in the fintech space have continued to kind of outperform. The question mark I have right now is in the story we have on the site, it says that the beta for its platform will help brands deploy treasury funds ranging from 50 to $100 million in size. And I can't get a good grasp on if that's a lot of money or a little money. I guess it's always depending, but where does that go? It's a lot of money. Yeah. It's a lot of money. 
a question that I have is where does that money come from? How does the treasury get filled in the DAO from the brand? The co-founders, I believe, mentioned NFTs and how major brands that do have NFTs may want to transition into having a DAO next. And so perhaps through the sale of NFTs, brands like Nike and Adidas have done well there. Perhaps that money gets funneled into a treasury in a DAO. But then my question is, then what? Because these companies are often public, so they already have shareholders, and you can't just create a faux democracy on the side and actually influence business decisions. So is it only Web3 stuff? My read is this. Mural is a young company. It's raised $5.6 million. And so we'll see. But it's cool to see them working in this direction. Yeah. Well, we're going to talk a little bit about the opposite of this topic, which is when leadership is everything and centralization is everything. But I first want to walk us through a little bit of some number work that you've been doing since you came back, Alex. You gave us a state of the market. So I guess I want to start with one of my favorite headlines of the week, which is call it venture farming season because seed rounds are kicking butts. What's (laughs) happening there, Alex? (laughs) I mean, sometimes I write a joke headline in a story and I send it over to Annie, who is my main editor. And I just expect her to instantly just erase it, you know, and just say, <laughs> tell me to just try again. This was one of those. And then I saw it on Twitter. I'm like, oh, it went out. Okay. <laughs> I guess I put, I put butt on the site. And I put a profanity in there last week. So, you know, killing it. First, it has to be a first. <laughs> from a very high level, I pulled some data from Carta, which is a equity cap table management company okay. that we're all familiar with. And they have a lot of information about deals that have happened. So just hardcore from the metal, just data from what's going on. And seed deals are surprisingly healthy. Late stage deals are shrinking, but valuations are proving stickier than we might have expected. And so to me, it's just more data to paint the picture. Mary, I think you and I have talked about this, that the venture market isn't as bad as some people like to say that it is. Like, yes, it's not 2021, Mm -hmm. but certainly we're going back to levels that were very recently record. Yeah. I mean, I actually found this article as a source of optimism, like a lot, because if investors are still backing companies at the seed stage, they're still willing to take bets. So that says a lot overall for the state of the venture market right now. And I think that's a line we keep seeing and it's hard to internalize. It's something you just said, Alex, where it's less than 2021, but it's on par, if not greater than 2020 or in the same world as 2020. And I was thinking a little bit when I was prepping for the show, I was like, okay, what happened in 2020? Because that did feel like an optimistic year. And for me, the ed tech world blew up. Like that was when I saw every ed tech company in the late stage become a unicorn. A lot of firsts were hit. A lot of sectors became spotlight sectors because of the pandemic. And so I don't know, I'm kind of thinking at a certain point, maybe just like doing a history lesson on why 2020 was also amazing would tell people Mm -hmm. what kind of world we're in versus it being like we're less than 2021. Yeah. Yeah. And Seed, going back to that point, is doing even better than it did last year by a couple of metrics. So if you compare Q2 Series B median valuations, they're up roughly 31% compared to their year ago numbers. And what's most important is that they are not down from one particularly high quarter last year, whereas Series A's and B's are actually off their all-time peaks. So Seed's kind of like at a new record point, which I hate to say it actually means that the VCs who have been complaining about the price of Seed deals and Seed valuations... They have a legitimate bone to pick with the market. And I will say with their fellow investors who are paying those prices. I am so happy because I'm thinking a little bit about that pod we recorded a while ago with Activation Energy and are Mm. new founders going to exist in the market? If you read this headline and read the story and listen to this, you definitely feel more confident in starting a company because there is capital Mm -hmm. for your first check, it seems like. Yeah. I mean, there's still so much money in the market. We're so far from a startup recession. We've just left the insanity of 2021. Which is not a bad thing at all. (laughs) 
I'm feeling better. I don't know about you guys. <laughs> Hell yeah. <laughs> okay. But imagine if, Natasha, you and I were still in SF at the same time and it wasn't COVID and that much money had flowed through the city. Imagine how many Michelin star punch oh, cards we could have filled. Fill it with me. Oh my God. Hey, I'm going to the ferry building later, so I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> All right. Well, you know, enjoy. I'm going to tack on one more data point to kind of make this argument that we're doing a bit more solid, which is that I went to Crunchbase, our former employer, and I was poking through their unicorn dashboards while furiously hunting for a morning idea to write up into a column, I think yesterday. And I noticed that when you look at the amount of money that unicorns have raised, it is dramatically down from last year's level. But if you prorate it and kind of annualize the numbers and look at where we're going to end up this year, we could easily see the second best year ever for capital flowing into unicorns, even after the stock market vomited all over its own shirt. Wow. That's just strength. That is real resilience. Yes. It's kind of like the moniker of unicorn completely lost value last year. And now it's like, if you're a unicorn and you're still still doing it, you have like an automatic signal, I think. Yeah. yeah. Street cred. A lot of street cred. I think that what I would say is the revenue focus of this year is healthy, but I do miss the insanity of last year. And some companies that had an insane last year are suffering a little bit this year. There is a bit of a, a hangover recovery period. Totally. And Natasha, Stripe is back in the news. Yeah. So last week I wrote a story about Stripe laying off employees at Techstar, which is a company they actually acquired last year in April, 2021. It was all about answering one of their customers' biggest wants, which is more support on sales tax collection and remittance as a service. And at that time, 200 people were joining Stripe as a result of the acquisition. And now report uh, sources are telling me that it, between 45 to 55 people were impacted by this cut. I mean, it's the first time we've seen Stripe, one of the most valuable fintechs in the market, if not the most valuable, have any any tension publicly or out loud. Well, Stripe's in the news again this week, not just for the layoff news, but also because one of their investors, a T. Rowe Price fund, actually once again reduced the valuation that it's giving to its shares in the company. And they're now down about 64% from their end of 2021 levels. Marianne, <laughs> one of the sharper fintech revaluations we've seen recently. Yeah, I was pretty stunned by that 64% figure. That's a big drop. And I really would love to know more from T. Rowe Price what led to that decision. I don't think they're talking publicly about it. No. Stripe's valuation is very much the story that doesn't stop because a few months ago, there was the internal valuation cut that was done through a 409A process. Then there was also Fidelity cutting its guidance. And now we have T. Rowe Price. And I'm kind of just like, we get it. There's lots of different people with different opinions on what Stripe is worth. I would love to hear from Stripe too. <laughs> Can they raise soon? But that revaluation of what Stripe is worth actually tracks very well back to the tax drop point. Mm -hmm. I mean, think mm -hmm. about last year when everyone was hiring more recruiters to try to grow their headcount more quickly. And employees suddenly went from being an asset that you would acquire ahead of growth to fuel your product work to now being a thing that's almost like a burden on your shoulders that you want to like right. shuck off. Yeah. Right. And so as we see Stripe's valuation come back to earth, having its headcount also trimmed makes pretty reasonable sense. And I wouldn't be shocked if this wasn't the last time that Stripe yeah. makes some sort of reductions this year. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, in acquisitions in general, there tend to be redundant roles. But what's kind of intriguing about this is that they bought this company in April of 2021. The layoffs are taking place now, what, think, 18 months later? Oh, sure. oh four, a little 16 over months later. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And the and Taxstar's co-founder, Matt Anderson, left Stripe in July. That's what you reported, Natasha, which is also interesting. So I don't know, like, you know, we could say, oh, there might have been some redundant roles, but I don't I don't feel like that flies when we're doing this 16 months later. 
here. Totally. I mean, I think this is like where we should be looking, which is the unicorns that acquired companies last year. Those acquisitions are all probably sweating a little bit right now, partially because of what you mentioned with redundancies, but also because to be an experimental bet for a unicorn is to not be a priority in 2022. <laughs> I mean, look at, well, Lemonade bought Metro Mile and then like right away laid off a bunch of people and like divested a unit. So I don't know. Ooh. Well, yeah, Metro Mile, oh, man, that's a podcast that's a for topic. another day. Yeah. But we should we should do that show on some point. Yeah. What happened to InsurTechs? Yes. Yeah, I mean, it's one of the saddest stories because everyone in that space that I talked to was, was lovely and then they had the worst run in the Ever. history of public markets. Speaking of people that have had a bad run in the public markets, Adam Newman. <laughs> oh, God. Is, how do we, how do we, oh, okay. Sorry. <laughs> we had to move on. Today, we are following our producer's timing notes and actually trying to stick to our allotted time. So if, it sounds like we're occasionally jumping ahead. It's because we're doing things correctly for once. <laughs> Anyways, Adam Newman's back in the news and it's kind of a home team story to a degree because a company called Alfred won TechCrunch Disrupts Battlefield competition back in 2014. I was there. I remember this. And then this week, like a blast from the past, Alfred's back in the news, Natasha, because apparently Adam Newman invested in them. And now Forbes is pointing out that he may have actually also broken out the old photocopier. Yes. Oh, my God. Well, <laughs> Alice Conrad is my tech journalist nemesis for many reasons because he writes such good stories. So shout out to him and the it's team really for this good. one. But the heart of the story was, like you mentioned, Alex, Adam Newman invested in Alfred in 2020 with a $20 million investment and then invested again this year. And Forbes estimates that Newman still owns more than 10% of Alfred. He actually eventually dropped his two board seats at the company because of the potential worry that there would be a public appearance of a conflict of interest. Of course, we're now seeing that, in fact, it's very public how conflict of interest the two deals look like. Yeah, and interestingly, in March, Alfred raised $125 million to buy a property management firm and supposedly that's what prevented Newman from eventually becoming a majority owner which I think kind of pissed him off to the point that he was like maybe I should go start something else yeah and so after that it does seem that there was a shift in his attention and suddenly we have a new company coming out called Flow and I am mm, okay Natasha how similar are these two companies <laughs> Alfred and Flow. Mm -hmm. Yes. Well, I actually need to give you the mic on Flow after this because I realized we never had you on to talk about it. You were out the week this happened. Uh. <laughs> but first to run through the high level. So Alfred helps run software for tenants and landlords. It owns a property management firm and quote, it's all about being resident first, tech enabled and a property management solution. Flow, meanwhile, is aiming to offer concierge-like benefits to renters, also management services for properties and third-party landlords, and then I believe in the New York Times scoop about it last week, has some idea around how to make renters participate in more ownership of their properties. Both companies sound very similar, and like other mm -hmm. companies in the space, too. They all sound very similar. Yeah, isn't this just Latch, but with a social layer? And Latch is already public, and it's been utterly pummeled by investors. We had the CTO on the show back in the day to talk about SPACs, and I just pulled up their share price. $1.11, down from a 52-week high of $14.83. Woof. That's brutal. Big woof. But the real story here isn't that someone's being bad, because that happens quite often in startup land. Ideas are copied all the time. Just look at Meta's headquarters. <laughs> And all that they do. But in this case, it's just kind of like more bad behavior from a bad actor who's been funded to the gills because as I missed last week, he raised 350 million at a unicorn valuation for a company that doesn't seem to actually exist yet. 
Don't get me started again. Unfortunately, I had to miss last week, so I couldn't. Oh, I couldn't. neither of you. Guys, neither of yeah. you have talked about it on the show. That's right. Yeah. So I, obviously that's not the topic of this show, but it is kind of appalling and it just shows his arrogance. He's like, invest in one company, has no shame to just go on and ditch that company, start another one that's competing directly with it, raise all this money after everything that has happened. I don't know. It just blows my mind that anybody has this much shamelessness. Yeah. Yes. I mean, I think we've talked a lot about like competition and, and tensions between like startups that look similar with each other. But I, I think what you said, Marianne, which is like, this is different than, hopefully this is fair to say, it's different than Adam Newman seeing a pitch of a company or one of the investors looking at a competitor and then giving him intel. That unfortunately is a big reality because of how yeah. loose and casual investing has become. This is mm-hmm. like a very formulaic approach to, I'm going to invest in a company, take a board seat, have a big stake in the company. Company and then depart month before my news comes out that I've raised the biggest check ever from Andreessen. Yeah. And it's it's just like, that's a different level. And again, I don't think either of us, based on our tone, are super surprised to see it come from someone who isn't worried about their reputation. Like Andreessen Horowitz. In the script, there's a question, which is, how is Andreessen Horowitz involved with this? And then also the Elon Musk drama And my takeaway is that they don't care and they don't need to care about it. At some scale, the center of gravity created by your pile of money is more important to you than an outward radiating reputation. And I think this is essentially getting lost in your own bubble. But if I was uh, Marcelo Sapone or Jessica Beck, the two co-founders of Alfred, I would be less polite than how they're treating this. And so I want to give them 10 points for restraint because I'm pretty sure that they only wanted to tweet in all caps, four letter wording, (laughs) and instead they're being... Very, they're not happy, but they're not shouting. And that shows their character, I'd mm-hmm. say. Yeah, like they're mm-hmm. good either way. Yeah. I hope they're good either way. Good I mean, <laughs> they raised a bunch of money. They bought a property management firm. Alfred's been around for eight years at least. So, you know, it's obviously up to something. But look, I'll say it bring back shame. Like if I was Adam Newman and I had charged my company for the use of a brand mark that I had registered or bought a jet I wasn't supposed to buy or rented my own properties and double dealt all around, I would be embarrassed. I'd be ashamed. I would devote my life to charity. Okay, so come on. We know all about narcissistic CEOs or founders. We can talk about those all day long, better.com, Vishal Garg. But another person that's kind of in the news this week that also appears to feel like he has like no boundaries to do whatever he wants is Elon Musk, right? And so he's got to disclose potential investors in his now abandoned Twitter bid which we all found interesting for a lot of reasons. Yeah. Well, the news is interesting, Natasha, because one, we want to know more details about Andreessen Horowitz and I think some other funds that were going to show up and help fund his hostile now required mandatory forced takeover of everyone's favorite and least favorite social app, Twitter. But it's more that Elon's seen a consequence of his actions that I find interesting. I'm very here for the two balances we're being seen play out this week with Newman being balanced out by the press, honestly. And then same with Elon Musk needing to now disclose it due to the law. Shout out when checks and balances work. I feel outdated. I think it's the first time that since he announced that he was going to buy Twitter that he's actually you know, had to be, you know, held accountable for something. Am I right or wrong? I, okay, but I don't remember everything. I, one thing I'm still missing is like, why does this suck for Elon Musk? Why does it suck that he has to disclose mm. investors? I still feel like it's not that bad, but I don't know. It's not that It's not that bad, but no one wants to have their business talked about publicly once you pass a certain level of wealth. Okay. Like, when was the last time, Natasha, you were on the phone with a family office? 
Yeah, not, it was not never, recent. Right? No. Or a fund of funds or really any LP that's backing a venture capital firm. VCs only talk to us because they view it as a marketing activity. Otherwise, they don't give a f- And in this case, there's no marketing value to major pools of money being shown as willing to back what was essentially apparently a prank by Elon. It doesn't make them look particularly serious or good, and it drags them into his orbit in a way that they might find discomforting given their generally highbrow demeanor, whereas Elon Musk is tweeting out, okay, I'm not going to summarize my favorite tweets of his. I I hope Elon keeps tweeting is what I'm saying. I hope, I hope, (laughs) I don't know what's going to happen with the lawsuit as long as we keep the tweets because mostly they're. You're kind of just like a combination cringe and hilarious yeah. is my take. Yeah. Entertainment. Yeah. <laughs> Entertainment for it's sure. Like car, it's like watching car crash videos on YouTube. You're like, oh yeah, the car crashed. All right. <laughs> Let's move on to end with like a more buttoned up, if I can say that, part of tech this week, which is Instacart's recovery. Alex, you wrote about growth from a grocery delivery company. I didn't know that existed. Yeah. So Instacart had a crazy pandemic. We all know that revenue grew to hundred. Sorry, 1.5 billion in 2020, up like 300% year over year. Then that slowed to about 15% growth last year, roughly 1.8 billion in revenue based on what I'm reading. And then in the first quarter of this year, the company grew once again by, you know, 10, 15%. And then Q2 growth accelerated to 39% year over year, $621 million in revenue. And ladies and gentlemen, Instacart's making noise about going public. They could be the company to break the log jam. Finally, we may return to IPOs and not with a small one, not with a whimper, but with a bang from a deck accord. Super impressed by what Instacart's been able to achieve. One of the few companies that saw a pandemic boom could have crashed hard this year, but has really maintained its footing. And I'm, I'm impressed by it because this could have really gone south very easily. Mm-hmm. And and the company had a lot of challenges. I know there was a lot of senior exec departures, right? And just a lot of things going on, but it managed to hold its footing. It's doing really, really well. And I wonder if it's a combination of people still wanting things delivered, even though the pandemic is officially over, they got used to the convenience and a fact that Instacart's just running itself well. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like both the external factors growing despite the external factors is impressive. But as you alluded to, Marianne, this company has had a ton of internal shifts, so to speak, over the past 12 to 16 months. And the one that I want to give the biggest weight to is a new CEO, Finchie Simo. Mm -hmm. She's one of the few female CEOs in charge of a business of this size. And so it's super impressive to see that growth and unsurprising to me. But I love more examples of people in this position. And then also we saw Apurva Mehta announcing that he's going to be stepping down from the board. We all knew that there was tension and that distractions could have happened. And so Alex, when you were writing the story, were you super surprised? I mean, we all knew it was going to be a spicy update, but was there any surprise that you had? The growth reacceleration, because usually as companies get bigger, their growth decelerates. It's harder to grow at 50% when you have hundred million in revenue versus 10. And that goes up and up and up and up, which is why if Microsoft grows 18%, it's like, holy shit. You know, that's impressive. Fiji used to run the Facebook app, lots of advertising background. And that's why I think Instacart's finding more growth because they're building not just delivery services, but software for grocers and also their own ad network. I happen to know more about that than I should due to another founder that I know. Huge market, very lucrative. And I know we're short on time, so I'll draw this analogy quickly so we can jump. But Instacart, pandemic accelerated, slowed down, reaccelerated, Zoom this week pandemic accelerated. And then it's kind of struggling a little bit. It's still a great company. It's still worth tens of billions of dollars, but the era in which Zoom was like ascendant are behind us. 
Yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> I feel like Zoom is not a word I've heard in a long time. I use Zoom this, all the time. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I use it like eight times a day. This may be the single most dense episode in terms of discrete topics and data points we've done in a long time. Mm-hmm. So I hope everyone that made sense, but I'll tell you this, we had like a thousand more things we wanted to put in, but we're not allowed to do three hour shows, sadly. So we have to let you go here. The equity crew will be back in force next week. We have shows on Monday. We have shows on Wednesday. We're going to do a live taping on Thursday, out Friday, wherever you listen to podcasts. But Mary and Natasha, before we let everyone go, a little promo, if you will, a little discount, a little coupon code, if you will. The code equity, all caps, will get you half off an annual pass to TechCrunch Plus, where the three of us spend a lot of our time writing. And we're going to have some discount codes coming up for Disrupt and I think our crypto event too. So stay tuned after the shows. We'll have some goodies for you as we go along. In the meantime, that's us. Bye. Bye. Bye.